Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 12. That's what we're going to try and do tonight. If you run across an item titled X-rays of strange items in kids' stomachs amaze doctors, well, that's one of those things you have to stop and look at. The most commonly swallowed items include coins, barrettes, rocks, and buttons. Remember Gene one time and he was just a little tyke. <laughs> Kmart picked up a filthy, dirty penny off the ground and swallowed it right in front of me, just like... <laughs> what, what, what gets into you to do something like that? As far as I know, the penny is still in him. I didn't mean anything by that. I just Now, the more uncommon items x-rayed include the following. A fork, car key. I like this one. They had a picture, an x-ray of this magnetic blocks that reconnected when they got down into the stomach. Safety pins, which are, of course, very dangerous. Uh, but here's one I didn't understand or I didn't realize it was this serious. Batteries especially the button batteries, you know, those weird little batteries that you can never find, they can create a circuit once they get into your esophagus and burn a hole through your esophagus. Good times. The Apostle Paul didn't know anything about x-ray machines in the first century, but if he did, he might have in this section of Romans 7 used the analogy that God's law is like an x-ray device in that it reveals what is hidden inside the human heart and mind. He says something pretty similar as it is. He's going to talk about how God's law was a spiritual diagnostic to reveal the human heart. If you've ever had an x-ray, you've probably seen the report from the radiologist. After describing what the x-ray shows, he or she summarizes the findings, and that's what you're really interested in. Verse 5, as we begin, reads like a summary of findings. He says, When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. It's as if you went in to, to, this, you know, to the great physician and said, Hey, what is wrong with me? And Paul says, Oh, well, when you're in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law are at work in members to bear fruit to death. When we're in the flesh, that is before we're converted to Christ, God's law aroused, meaning it reveals and exposes the fact that sinful passions are at work in the members of our physical body. Why? Uh, what rather are some of the passions revealed and exposed by God's law? Well, elsewhere, Paul lists some of them. Galatians chapter 5, for example, he talks about things like adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry and sorcery and hatred, contentions and jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. Those are just partial list of uh, what we would call sinful passions at work in and through our physical body. He says in verse 6, but now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The first part of verse 6 reminds us of what we learned in verses 1 through 4, what we studied last time. 
There, Paul explained that when we died with Jesus Christ, we were set free from the law the same way a wife is freed from her deceased husband. We were set free to be able to marry another. In our case, we are the betrothed bride of Jesus Christ. And so, with regard to living by the law of God, uh, we are dead to that and alive to just have a vital, vibrant, dynamic relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. In this newfound freedom, we're empowered to serve in the newness of the Spirit. Among other things, that means we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and are encouraged by Him moment by moment to therefore yield ourselves to the Lord. The oldness of the letter is to live trying to please God by keeping the law's rules and regulations and rites and rituals. Uh, people who uh, observe diets and days and these kinds of things because they believe that that is the way to become and maintain spirituality. We don't live by laws like that anymore. We find that love is a superior motive for our daily living, for our obedience, and for our holiness. Now, Paul is going to expand on this idea of serving in the newness of the Spirit. That's going to be uh, his subject in chapter 8. That's where we really want to get to, and that's where we want to live. But before Paul could describe this new and empowered way of living, he knew his audience, and he knew he had an argument to overcome. If, if he was speaking just to Gentiles, he could jump probably right into chapter 8, but since he was uh, talking to Jews as well, he needed to deal with an issue. A Jew or a Gentile, a non-Jew who had converted to Judaism, would hear Paul's comments about God's law, and he might think, there must be something wrong with God's law if what it does is expose people's sin. If it seems to be connected in any way with people's sin, then there must be something wrong with it, or Paul is at least saying that there's something evil about it. And so Paul must stop to respond to this objection and show that the problem, of course, is not with God's law, it's in the heart of man. And that's why he says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, how am I going to answer your argument that your, or your you know, assessment that I'm saying the law is sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness, uh, covetousness rather, unless the law had said, you shall not covet. I know I'm going to belabor this whole x-ray illustration, but would you say that x-rays are bad because they show you what is wrong? Go to a doctor, he gives you an x-ray. The last x-ray I had, I think it was about a year ago um, when I was at the doctor's for, I think I'd had a bad cold or something, and, and uh, I told you about this, it was nothing. Uh, Dr. Cobley, he, he spent a long time feeling my, my throat, and we were friends, we still are friends, uh, but uh, we're friends, and so I said, hey, so what's the deal, what's going on? He goes, well, you got a little growth on your thyroid, I'm going to send you down for an x-ray. And I was a little bit, you know, this worrisome, I guess, you know, so I go down, get an immediate x-ray, uh, and, you know, I, I, he came, and he says, well, your x-ray is clear, and I said, uh, obviously, that's good, and he goes, yeah, if you had leukemia, it'd be full of these things, and you'd be, you know, six months from death, and I thought, all right, way to go, thanks for telling me that before, you're not telling me that before, but the idea is that 
if I was excited, my lungs were great, and, and, uh, but had they been filled with tumors, I wouldn't have blamed the x-ray. I wouldn't have thought, oh, if I had only not had that x-ray, I would be okay. It wasn't the x-ray's fault, it's just a diagnostic tool, and it's a good one. And so why would someone think God's law was bad for revealing sin? Well, they might think that because they misunderstood the purpose of God's law. The Jews had a long history of supposing that the purpose of God's law was to make them righteous. They believed, listen, they believed that the diagnostic tool God gave them was actually the cure for sin. They believed it the way that it would be as if I would have gone to the x-ray and thought, well, I'm, I'm cured now because I've had the x-ray. Uh, but, but no, the doctor would say, no, the x-ray shows you the problem or the potential problem. And now we have to find the treatment and the cure. But the Jew, they didn't understand that the, the law was a diagnostic of the human heart and they began to see it as the cure. And they thought, wow, we've got the law to make us holy. And Paul is scratching his head now uh, post-Pharisee days and saying, no, that's the exact opposite. As a diagnostic tool, x-rays are great. But what if a person who had swallowed something said, I'll just stay right here being x-rayed until I get better? You've got a pin in your stomach, or you've got batteries in your stomach. They're eating a hole in your stomach right now. That's my battery noise. You have to make noise. I find myself making noises as a grandparent more than I used to as a parent. But uh, anyway, you don't say, well, I'll just stay here and be x-rayed continuously until I get better. I feel better already. Yeah, you're going to die. Either the stomach is going to, you know, either the battery is going to eat through your esophagus or the x-rays are going to kill you sooner or later. So you can't do that. And you, you and I would think that was just stupid or ignorant or it's it just wrong. We'd understand immediately they need something more to help them. So does a man or woman need something more to help them whose sinful passions are revealed by the law of God. And so the law of God, all it can do is reveal things to you. I would not have known sin except through the law. The Jews had summed up God's law with 613 commandments. Of the 613 commandments, 248 were mandates telling you what you should do, and 365 were prohibitions telling you what not to do. Then there were endless commentaries on exactly how to keep the mandates and how to avoid the prohibitions. The Jews brought, uh, thought rather that by keeping these, they were attaining and maintaining a righteousness that was acceptable to God. So they went to the law, and instead of seeing that it was revealing their sin, they thought, oh, uh, I should keep the Sabbath. And uh, that's one of those you know, positive laws. And then they had endless debates and talks about, well, how do I do that exactly? What, what does it mean to do work on the Sabbath? And I, you know, with the best intentions, they start down that road. But, man, you talk about it. It's worse than a slippery slope. It's like an avalanche. How do you keep the Sabbath? Well, what if you're a, what if you're a barber? Can you shave yourself on the Sabbath? Hmm. Maybe we should have a hair committee look into that, you know. And, and so they would do these things. That's why I think almost with frustration, they finally asked Jesus one day, they said, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Can you just give us one thing to do? Because we're tired of trying to figure all this stuff out. And the Lord said, well, sure, I can do that. Love, 
the Lord your God with all your heart and all, you know, mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything's in there. Of course, you can't do that either without his help, but uh, that was the deal. And so they were trying to you know, get to their righteousness uh, completely the wrong way. Covetousness, it's the most internal of the prohibitions in the Ten Commandments. I mean, you might read most of the Ten Commandments uh, from one point of view and think, oh, I'm doing okay. Of course, then when Jesus comes along, he says, no, they're all about the heart and you're not doing very well at all. Outwardly, you might be somewhat okay. You haven't murdered anybody, but I bet you've driven in L.A. traffic and you've wanted to. Uh, and so that counts against you. That's a strike. But when you get to covetousness, you're totally busted because that's just internal and everybody struggles with it. Paul's point was that God's law exposes what is present in your heart. It exposes a sin nature you are born with. Verse 8, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire for apart from the law sin was dead opportunity is actually a military word it means to establish a base of operations when I hear a commandment such as do not covet I immediately realize that within my heart sin already has established a base of operations because I do covet there is a base right there in my heart from which covetousness has been operating. In fact, not just covetousness, but he says all manner of evil desire has a base of operation in my heart. God, when God saved me, uh, you know, however many years ago, back in the late 70s, uh, there was a stunning realization one moment that I'd never had before that I was a sinner. Not that I sinned or I wasn't a good person or that I, you know, had some things to work on, but that right in my heart there was a base of operations, a sinister, evil, wicked, black, dark base of operations that had been work at work in my entire life, hidden as it were in the shadows, uh, ignored or whatever, and God's Word revealed that to me and I, I don't have to read, you know, uh, the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. I felt like I was dangling over hell, as it were. I, I didn't think I could get saved fast enough be, because of, of just the wickedness that God revealed. And that's what Paul is talking about. He says, you, at some point, God uses his law, his word, to reveal to an individual that there's a base of operations in their life and that it's sin. When the commandment came... Uh, is when Paul real, or, uh, excuse me, um, base of operations, okay. Apart from the law, he says, sin was dead, means I did not recognize that indwelling sin nature until it was exposed by God's law. So now, verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. When was Paul alive without the law? <clears throat> I think he's referring to himself as a Pharisee, thinking that spiritual life could be achieved and maintained by personal effort, by works of righteousness according to the outward tenets of God's law. He had a certain kind of life that he lived when he thought keeping the law would save him. Paul was, um, was wrong. He was sincere. I mean, he, he was zealous in the law. Uh, you know, and, and his zeal led him to kill Christians and imprison Christians. Uh, and so he, he lived a certain life he thought it was going to lead to eternal life before 
he really understood the law before it slayed him and he understood that he was a sinner. But when the commandment came, that's when Paul realized the inward spiritual holy nature of the law and he understood that its purpose was to show him his sin. Thus sin revived, meaning it sprang to life as to his awareness of it in his heart. He became aware in that, that there was sin in his heart that he could do nothing about. Instead of bringing him life, it says he died, meaning he understood he was spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins and that the law that he was trying to keep so diligently not only couldn't help him, but it was showing him what was wrong. In terms of our analogy, Paul understood God's law was diagnosing his problem and that it was not the cure for his problem that he thought it was. In verse 10, "...and the commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death." As a Pharisee, Paul thought that keeping God's law outwardly would bring life, but when it really exposed his heart, he saw its true purpose. He found it to bring death or to reveal uh, death to him. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. While expecting to merit eternal life by keeping the law, God showed Paul his sin by revealing his covetous heart. He realized he had been deceived by sin and that he thought it could be overcome by obedience Instead, he would be killed for it. He was headed for eternal death. And verse 12, Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. Therefore reminds us that Paul is answering an objection. He was answering those who said that he was teaching that if it revealed sin, then God's law must be flawed or bad. No, all of God's law, he says, is holy, and every one of its commands is holy, just, and and good. Again, if I come home with some terrible disease and I have to tell my wife or my family, I don't, I don't tell them that it was the fault of the diagnostic test. Um, it's kind of funny in my family, my, my, my uh, you know, family I grew up with. Um, my dad had a philosophy from the old world. He's an Italian immigrant that you never, you just don't, you don't go to the doctor because as soon as they cut you, then you get worse. And, and uh, I think it's coming, the idea that you just live with whatever it is and then you die without knowing it. You know, my idea is that they cut you and they discover you're dying, not that there was something wrong with the doctor. But he, he had this idea that you just, you know, unless you think you're dying, you don't go to the doctor, you don't go to the hospital because they're going to find something. And, and, and he kind of blames the doctor. He kind of blames the test for it, you know. I would have been okay if I hadn't gone to the doctor. It'd be like, how many times, and, and a lot of you have been through this, so I don't want to joke about it, but you go to the doctor for one thing and they find something else. You know, I, I've, a lot of stuff on the prayer chain over the years. My friend went to the doctor for a regular checkup and they found a tumor the size of Mount Baldy in, in, in her, you know, that she didn't know about and they had to remove it, you know and that kind of a thing. Uh, but they don't come home and say, doggone that doctor and that test. If they had only left me alone, what? You would have died. Uh, and so that's kind of the thing that's going on here. And, and um, um, you know, you just uh, can't accuse God's law at all. It just exists. And, and the purpose of it is to diagnose sin and to reveal sin because it shows the perfection of God, the high standard of God, the, the holiness that's required. And when Jesus comes along and he starts to point that out and he says, you've, you, know, uh, you maybe haven't murdered anybody, but you've, you've been angry. 
and you maybe haven't committed physical adultery, but, you maybe, but you've lusted in your heart. And Jesus said, you've, you've committed those sins then in your heart, and this is the purpose of the law, is to reveal that so that you will flee to God and ask Him for mercy and, and realize that you must be justified by grace through faith apart from keeping the law. And the Jews had all of this backwards, and so they were always scratching their heads and saying, well, what about the law? And Why can't I keep the law? And you're saying bad things about the law and all of this. Christians still have a hard time with it. It's really hard when you're reading commentaries for Christians to... I mean, not that... The, the thing is, we don't set aside the law. We fulfill the law by keeping the law of love because I love the Lord and I'm motivated by love. I find myself automatically doing the things that I ought to be doing uh, without trying to do them. But Christians, when they talk about this or they write about it, they're very hesitant to... I mean, it's like, well, yeah, we kind of... We don't really keep the law, but we kind of do. I mean, yeah, we do, actually. I mean, you, you know, you don't, but you do. Uh, you know, and all the commandments are repeated. And, and so, you know, really, you know, and, and we're afraid to, to tell people to just live by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. Because we still think that if you say that to somebody, they'll think, great, I'll just go out and sin. And we've lost this idea that the law is telling them what a sinner you are and, and you will flee to Christ. And praise the Lord for those of us who have come to the Lord. The law and the commandments serve a great purpose. They accurately diagnose the spiritually dead condition of your heart by showing you all the sinful passions that have their base of operations there. If God's law is like a spiritual x-ray, then you and I as Christians are x-ray techs who subject non-believers to the law in the hope that they will see what is really inside them, a sin nature that has set up a base of operations. Uh, we need to, at some point, uh, explain to people what they need to be saved from. The, the, there needs to be at some point in a person's life an awareness that they're a sinner and that they need salvation. The analogy that a lot of times people use is the, the, air, the parachute analogy. Uh, you, you, most people, you know, if you, go, if you get on an airplane, uh, you're not going to normally wear a parachute. It's, those seats are uncomfortable enough anyway. They're only this wide, you know, and, and so you're all hunched, and the guy in front of you is leaning back and snoring and all. Anyway, so you're not going to have, but, and so, you know, but if the stewardess were to, I mean, they don't have parachutes on, you know, planes anyway, but if the stewardess were to run down and say, we're going down, this is not an option, put on your parachute or you're going to die. Well, that's a different story. I like that. I might figure out how to pull, uh, you know, I might go skydiving for the first time, you know. Uh, and, and so at some point people need to understand that they're sinners and, and that they're going to die. And so if God's law is that diagnostic tool, then we can apply the law. We can talk to them from the law. We can show a person that they're a lawbreaker. Have you ever lied? Have you ever uh, coveted anything? you ever lusted in your heart, ever been angry? Well, then you've broken God's law, and a lawbreaker can't go to heaven. Those kinds of things. Once a person has the correct diagnosis, which is indwelling sin, that there is a base of operations in their heart that needs to be eradicated, then he or she will be apt to receive the cure, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead. All the religions of the world are offering 
a false hope and a false cure through works of righteousness, which people can do by which they are told that God will have to accept you. Uh, if you do these five things or ten things or whatever it is, God must accept you. And, and we as Christians know that there are no works of righteousness that we can do. That's all apart from works and it's a matter of faith. And we can use God's law properly in order to bring that diagnosis to bear. Amen? All right. Praise the Lord.